suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Hello out there and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Morahan, and my brother, J.S., to provide you with another in a series of interesting, informative, educational, and we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate those high seas of life. Today we introduce John Fogarty's CCR and the Arc of Excellence, Part 4. Just to set the stage, you'll remember that between 1959 and 1968, a garage band in the wrong side of the Bay Area of San Francisco rose to fame and fortune, and CCR, Creedence Clearwater, in 1968 had a series of hit songs, and by 1969, they outsold the Beatles. They were driven by the talented but very troubled John Fogarty, who led them on a 30-month run to excellence. John refused to allow the band to take encores, which deprived his three bandmates of, an, of any ability to share in his glory because not only was John writing the songs, coming up with the melodies, but in the studio he re-recorded all the instrumentation and the members of the band were nothing more than tools and they wanted to share in the glory and they were talented guys. But John Fogarty was a very needy human being and denied respect in the studio denied live applause and and the recognition that should have been theirs to cherish the only moments they might have shared in the glory a few moments in the sun alongside john but john wouldn't even even share any of the acclaim not for one song even and he wasn't going to allow, allow it under any circumstance and he'd not allowed uh, his bandmates a single moment to revel in the limelight. And beyond the mean-spirited nature of, of this denial, his empty vessel of a psyche was so pathological that he desperately needed all the attention. He was a big man who acted like a small man. And, and, you know, when I had a real job, you know, a long time ago, I was committed to the idea that only hard work would get us to the top of the field. So I understand John Fogarty's drive, his ambition, and his need for a solid work ethic. The need that the band practice a strenuous commitment if, if, if they were going to produce any good work products whatsoever. And, it, in, and so in that regard, I'm sympathetic toward John's belief that the business, in, in his case and in their case, the business of making music, that it was serious business. He didn't go to the 
factory. They didn't go to the factory every day to have fun. No, they went there to achieve something great. And I do admire that. And I agree with that attitude. It wasn't supposed to be about showing up for work to have fun. It was all about achieving something spectacular. And I used to joke when I went to work that I had only three friends in the world and that when I went to work, I wasn't going there to find my fourth friend. I was going there to achieve something. And the only way to be great was to drive hard, to really push matters. So John Fogarty trusted nobody but himself. And he thought he was better than everybody else at everything. And you know what? He was. He really wasn't a team player. And in many ways, I kind of thought like John Fogarty did. But I believe he was so obnoxious and so over the top in so many ways. And, and he didn't have to be so uncaring about the welfare and self-respect to which his bandmates were rightfully entitled. God, I hope I wasn't anything like John Fogarty in this regard whatsoever. All this selfish behavior was so unnecessary and it proved so self-destructive. Always worded that success would abandon him, John Fogarty proved to be his own enemy and the reason that CCR and he personally would lose it all and be dethroned. King of the Hill, John Fogarty scored an own goal, if you would, when he suicidally flung himself off the mountaintop by depriving his mates of some share in the glory. Thus, it ended his own and CCR's stay at the summit of the rock and roll world. And so frustrated by John's behavior, older brother Tom, a great rhythm guitarist in his own right, who had stepped aside for his genius kid brother, stepped back as John took over not only creative control of the band, but every aspect of CCR. Tom could take no more, and Tom quit the band at its very height in December 1970. He could tolerate his brother John not one day longer. And with his departure from the band, CCR, it really was the death knell of Creedence Clearwater Revival. You know, as stated so articulately uh, by uh, the writer Thomas Wolfe, you can never go home again. Creedence Clearwater was done. It may not have been official yet, but it was over. When Tom quit the band, John had done them in. He brought them songs that brought them glory, fame, and riches. And he also was the man who poisoned the well. The band at John's doing had signed terribly oppressive uh, contracts that enslaved John, by the way, for the rest of his career. And at, at one point, he, he owed Fantasy Records his next 180 songs. Think of the absurdity of this figure. I mean, imagine Paul McCartney and John Lennon at their peak with all their prodigious songwriting um, capabilities. They could never in a lifetime have produced 180 songs, no matter what their quality, for their record company. It was totally ridiculous, unfair, inequitable, and actually impossible. 
unfathomable if the truth be told. But guess what? It was abusive in the extreme. The band had been screwed out of their rights, their royalties, their freedom by men who definitely abused them. But guess what? John had signed those contracts as the manager of CCR. He may have been a songwriting, lyrical, and musical genius, but he proved himself no business genius. History has noted John's deficiency in this regard, his lack of business acumen. And in in that regard, he unfortunately joins a litany of other artists and musicians who have been egregiously taken advantage of by unscrupulous, greedy wolves clothed in the form of agents, managers, record companies. And these contractual inequities led John Fogarty to be in litigation almost every year of his adult life. For more than 40 years, he wound up in litigation with the band, the record companies, agents, managers. You know, Tom, Doug, Stu, and John eventually all would be involved in mind-numbing, hate-filled, you know, anger-inducing, soul-killing, costly, lengthy litigation oh, over such things as who owned the rights to the songs made famous by CCR? The name itself. Who owned Creedence Clearwater Revival? Who might tour as Creedence Clearwater Revival or Creedence Clearwater Revisited? Who might claim, um, you know, might rightfully claim to tour as even CCR? Fifteen years later, John would be sued by his by his, his record company for plagiarizing his own songs in his most recent song. He, he, by the way, he lost that case at trial, then filed appeals all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, where John ultimately prevailed in a 9-0 decision. But along the way, John's record company refused to pay him any royalties on any sales of any of the songs that he'd written in his lifetime, not just the disputed song Centerfield. This royalty offset by the record company um, may well be impermissible. It is impermissible under law. It's illegal. But in the business of business, hardball is really hardball, to stay with the baseball metaphor. And as an, aside, as an aside, in business, I have found that one does not often become a billionaire by necessarily being a nice guy. Well, we move on. John would wind up in lawsuits with his bandmates for decades. There's a price beyond money that one pays for all this animosity, all this angst, all this infighting. John, John found himself even sued by his brother, Tom. Between 1970, when John, um, when Tom quit CCR, until 1985, when John uh, made a surprising comeback with his center field, there had been 15 years in the wilderness for John. Not a happy time. Little was accomplished behind uh, beyond lots of hours spent in his music studio producing nothing of value. And, and there was tons of time spent in lawsuits, depositions. It was a terrible time. There was a great deal of anguish and heartache, drinking and over-reliance on pills and tough times for John Fogarty. An unhappy man made even more miserable by the passage of time. 
Then in 1985, when, when John was busy fighting his record company, whom accused him of plagiarizing his own songs, his brother Tom, he chose not to be there to lend John any support. He, he might have needed some, as it turns out. But these things, you know, do have a way, you know, there's a karmic nature to these things. And five years later, Tom himself was dying of AIDS. And he ostensibly, that he ostensibly um, got from a tainted blood infusion. Nevertheless, Tom was interested in visiting with and achieving some sort of peace with his brother, John, before he died. But John, true to his nature, 20 years after the breakup of the band, and with full knowledge that his brother Tom was dying, and, and an understanding that his brother Tom wanted to achieve some sort of reconciliation with him before his death, John, he would not budge. There would be no meeting with Tom. You know, like the motto of that hard-assed Oregon logging family that Ken Kesey described and featured in his fabulous novel, Sometimes a Great Notion, led by its, its hard-ass patriarch Hank Stamper, whom had carved in wood and nailed above his front door the, uh, of the family cabin, the, the family motto, never give an inch. Well, John Fogarty wasn't about to give an inch, not one. He wouldn't budge at all. He refused to visit his dying brother. When asked about this, John, John suggested that Tom uh, be shown the legal papers, Tom Fogarty versus John Fogarty. This was John's defense. Boy, John could carry a grudge. Tom would die without a visit from his brother, John. Some wounds just never heal, which, which, which is very interesting to me. Because if, if one, one reads the Bible, whether one's religious or not, just read the Bible, one can read of, of a great many you know, grudge matches, you know, a fight to the death sort of thing, lots of revenge, many, many angry men, an eye for an eye kind of thing, vengeance, animus, reprisal, biblical retribution, smoting people, world-class generational grudges, like, like the ancient um, Pathan code of the mountain people in the Hindu Kush in Afghanistan, where a Pathan lament went... Um, remember the Pathan whom took his revenge after a hundred years and whom thought it came too soon. Well, John, John Fogarty understood this completely. He did live under a bad moon rising. You know, there's a story in the Bible about King David whom conducts an adulterous affair with the beautiful Bathsheba. But the problem, she's married, but King David impregnates her. <laughs> now what? Well, What's King David's next move? Well, swallow hard because it's not pretty. The king's got a solution ready. He orders Bathsheba's cuckolded husband shipped to the front lines of the battlefield where he is killed in battle. Well, that's certainly one way to get rid of an inconvenient man. King David is certainly not exactly a man for all seasons, if you will. Yet, quite surprisingly, God, often depicted in the Bible as one angry, unforgiving, demanding, vengeful dude, that is God. Ultimately, he, and by the way, he is a he, he found a way to forgive King David, his hideous, treacherous, dishonorable, selfish, 
indefensible, morally reprehensible behavior. God could find a way to let it all go. Forgive. Forgive King David all his sins. But John Fogarty, as respects his dying brother, no way. Nope. John Fogarty could not. He would not. He would not lay down his sword. John could not and would not unearth within himself any possible means by which he'd forgive his brother for his perceived wrongdoings, for those transgressions. He would not drop his animosity. He would not let bygones be bygones. Relinquish his animosity? No way. Visit his dying brother? No way. Tom went to his grave unreconciled with John Fogarty. John was one angry man, and his life was filled with torment. Even in the best of times, John was one pissed off character. All the glass, half full, half empty nonsense, no way. When you saw the sun, John saw the desert. When the sun was shining, John saw the rain was on its way. You think the 1960s, you know, age of Aquarius, age of peace and love, Woodstock, all that stuff, not John Fogarty. He thinks something else. He told us in song, run through the jungle, hope you are quite prepared to die. Uh, I ain't no fortunate son. Looks like we're in for nasty weather. There's a bad mood on the rise. I'm stuck in old Lodi again. I mean, bleak stuff. Terry Billy to the torture of the talented. This was John Fogarty. Not only had John Fogarty denied his three bandmates the ability to bask, if only for a few minutes, in the limelight of the, of, of the stage, live on stage in front of an audience that was demanding encores and cheering. Not only did John refuse his dying brother his wish for a last get-together, but John, he... He killed off all attempts by the producers of the documentary that memorialized you know, the 1990, uh, 1969 Woodstock Music Festival that included CCR's live performance, which, which followed The Grateful Dead and preceded Janis Joplin. John had his reasons. Well, reasons known only to John. 53 years later, because John Fogarty had not permitted usage of the footage of CCR's post-midnight performance at Woodstock to be included in the documentary film. He wouldn't provide them the rights to do so. Most music fans today are unaware that CCR was one of the headliner bands at the Festival of All Music Festivals. Most music fans will never know that CCR even played Woodstock. Posterity will not include Doug or Stu, or Tom Fogarty's performance as the most famous, um, at the most famous music fest in all of music history. As once again, John had denied his mates their rightful place in the annals of rock and roll. All that talent, all that genius, all that brilliance, but in the end, John Fogarty was one tormented, litigious, vengeful soul. FDR, yeah, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, once wrote that happiness lies in the joy of achievement and the thrill of the creative effort. Well, 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 maybe that's what FDR believed. And in many cases, maybe that's even the fact. 
Maybe it is. But had FDR known John Fogarty, he may have found it necessary to modify that or note the exception to the rule or make a footnote. Another artist in the form of Agatha Christie, the author of so, so many famous books, once wrote, I like living. I have sometimes been wildly, despairingly, acutely miserable, racked with sorrow. But through it all, through it all, I still know quite certainly that just to be alive is a, is a grand thing. Well, this is not the same attitude that John Fogarty has brought to life. He would never agree to this. And so John Fogarty lives on, one talented genius, but one unhappy man. Hey, thanks for listening to this series on John Fogarty, CCR, and their incredible arc of excellence, which included 17 hit songs within a 30-month period. And let it be known, and let us finish with this, CCR and John Fogarty released in 1971, Have You Ever Seen the Rain? It reached number two on the charts. And in 2021, 50 years after John Fogarty wrote that song, and it was recorded by CCR, it reached number one on Billboard's chart of the most downloaded song of the year. Wow, they were talented, but they were victimized by one tortured soul, John Forby. Hey, thanks for listening, and goodbye. Bye-bye.